two in Programme One as I welcome back retired Detective Chief Superintendent John O'Brien, who spent close to 40 years in the Garda Síochána. John, who's originally from Ballinhasic, has just published his third book. It's entitled The Troubles Come South, Murder and Mayhem, and it looks at the impact the Northern Troubles had on the Republic. There's a three-pronged approach in the book, as John covers his own personal stories from often very troubled and tragic times, the impact the Troubles had, and their legacy, which is ongoing. Well, 50 years ago, last Tuesday, an event occurred that captured the attention of the entire nation. The Wolf Tones, who else, even recorded a song about it. A helicopter, which had been hijacked by the Provisional IRA, landed without much trouble in the exercise yard of Mountjoy Jail and took off almost immediately with three of their top men. Mountjoy Prison at that stage was being used as uh, the, the prison for the, for, the, for the Provisional IRA. The Provisional IRA, very clever in, in engineering terms and in ingenuity. And of course, when you're in jail, you have loads of time to think. And if you're a prisoner, the first thing you want to think of is escaping. But they had seen a helicopter coming into Mountjoy on previous occasions, I think for medical reasons, and maybe a ministerial visit, I just can't remember exactly. So they had figured, look, if we can get a helicopter in here, we can get some of our top people out. Now, it would only take a handful. So that's the plan that they devised. And Irish helicopters had a base beside Dublin Airport. And this furious um, guy who had been uh, got by the provost for the part, English accent, uh, you know, suitable business approach, hired the helicopter to do uh, allegedly a photo shoot down in Dunamason in Leash. And of course, when the helicopter arrived in Dunamason, it was hijacked by the waiting party there. And then they, the pilot was forced to fly to Mount Joy and... Very difficult because it's very, very difficult to land in a, in an enclosed place. It's not like the the, the, the movies, you know, there's the, the configuration of the buildings and wind currents make it very difficult. But in any event, the provost there created a disturbance um, and three of their members uh, escaped in the helicopter. And by the way, they booted off a few more of their colleagues who tried to decide that this was a very good idea. And then that helicopter was flown to Baldoyle Racecourse in North County, Dublin. Now, all of the three escapees were subsequently re-arrested, not directly or immediately. And, and the story, of course, was... Now, this was a major scandal because... The obvious thing is a helicopter ingress to a closed yard could easily be prevented by just stringing, literally, John, eight or ten wires across the open space over the prison exercise yard. So a case of closing the gate when the parse bolted? Yeah, John, I think we can say that there's a lot of the experience of that particular strategy, <laughs> you know. Every, every time plans are changed, they're done in the context of the last event, of course. The last event doesn't always resemble the future event. But yeah, you're perfectly right, yeah. Eight years later, in 1981, another event captured the attention of not only the country on this occasion, but the entire world. But there was an extra element to this also, emotion, which was bound to result in trouble and violence. This was the H-Block protest and eventual hunger strikes. The seeds for the protest began five years earlier, when the Labour government of Harold Wilson abolished the special category status granted to IRA prisoners, which allowed them, amongst other things, to wear their own clothes, hence declassifying a criminal status. On the 5th of May 1981, Bobby Sands, member of the Provisional IRA, died while on hunger strike at the Mays Prison in Belfast. The entire nation was angry and trouble was now inevitable. That's right, John. I mean, it was the only second time, the second time in my service when I thought there was a fair chance, and a fair chance maybe is the wrong expression, but there was a possibility that the guards would lose control of the streets because essentially 
civil policing for civil police are their role and it's civil place today by the way is to maintain control of the streets to allow protests and so on and so on but the 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 hate block protests apart from the death of uh, Bobby Sands was also coincided with a general election so it was it was an extraordinary time of tension the black flag flag protests uh, were all over the country there was a real climate of fear it was an extraordinary event and of course the because there was an election then the in the offing provisional IRA provisional Sinn Féin decided that they would run candidates in the election and of course there was a huge uh, wellspring of support for that because Margaret Thatcher was sitting in Downing Street and uh, we always remember her famous line of out, out, out uh, you know so the, and Charles J. Hawhey had been Taoiseach at one stage replaced by Gareth Fitzgerald a little later so it was a very horrendous time it culminated in the riot that which took place at the British Embassy on Merrion Road and that was like the, the Lansing of the boy. But I mean, it was an enormously violent event. And, and I deal with it quite in the book. And I talk about the tactics involved in doing it and uh, the injuries that were caused to the guards. Many, many of my colleagues received very serious injuries because this was, it was almost like World War I tactics, John, one mob dealing with the other. But th- that lanced the boil. A lot of support was lost to the provost at that stage because it was clear that there was a huge violent attack on the guards who were protecting the British embassy like they would any other embassy in those circumstances. You mentioned Margaret Thatcher. I'm almost certain you mentioned in the book as well the relationship, if you could call it a relationship, between her and Charlie Hawhey at the time. Yeah, this is very interesting because again, when we look, we could you see the Falklands, or as the, the Argentinians would call it, the Malvinas Islands became the the Argentinians had taken over uh, the Malvinas or the Falklands, and Maggie Thatcher launched an armada to retake them. And Charles J. Hawhey couldn't really help himself in that he he sided very publicly and openly with the Malvinas issue and so on from there. And of course, Margaret Thatcher being the, the nationalist that she was in British terms was absolutely insulted by it. Now, they had a curious relationship. When he went to visit Margaret Thatcher for the first time, he brought her, I think, especially inscribed little silver set, uh, your coffee set and so on. So there was a little bit of, of Charlie in all of that. But the bottom line is it poisoned the cooperation mechanism that should happen between countries who are operating under a rule of law perspective. And, uh, and Charlie certainly, you know, overplayed his hand in, in that Albeit he was also trying to get elected or re-elected as Taoiseach in the, in the election that took place. So a complicated mix with the Iron Lady and the Iron Taoiseach. Simply uh, the sparks were flying and the consequences were not positive for, you know, for good relations. Operation Lifesaver began in 1997. Its objective was, as the title suggests, to save lives on Irish roads, as it targeted speeding, drinking and driving, and the non-wearing of seatbelts. By November of that year, 412 people had been killed on Irish roads. The man given the task of sorting out this tragic problem was John O'Brien. In the same period of the Troubles, John, 20,000 people were killed on Irish roads. Now, the the debt... Told from the Northern Troubles, I think it was three and a half thousand, and 
Uh, forgive me if I'm if I'm not absolutely accurate, but I think it's around three and a half thousand. So it was always an enormous problem. But the state apparatus, in terms of the the policing and I guess government agencies, were, were preoccupied with the problems associated with the north. So it looked like there would be a change. I was in Garda headquarters and I got a phone call from the commissioner one morning who said. Uh, John, I'd like you to do something. Now, when the commissioner says to you, I'd like you to do something, Charlie really means I want you and you're to do something. So <laughs> he said, I want you to set up a bureau that will look uh, that will look specifically at the problem of road injuries and deaths. And I got a marvellous opportunity to look at this in a strategic way because any young guard would tell you the first difficult thing they ever visited was a society. We used to call them accidents. We call them crashes now. Those are more deliberate acts than accident, accidents, we put it. You know, so, and even one of the first memories, and I related in the book, we've been going to the first scene of a fatal collision. So deeply ingrained. So I looked around and I said, well, who does this better than us? And believe it or not, it was Victoria in Australia, which demographically was kind of similar to Ireland in terms of shape and size. And they had a very sophisticated system going based on the statistics, because the one thing that you need when you're dealing with any problem is get the key information. So after much coming and going, I got the chance to go to Victoria with a, with a, with a party, including some technical experts on the IT thing. And we came back with the idea that we knew how to do this. And it's basically... Targeted, targeted enforcing three things in the in the lexicon of of, uh, of road safety. One is enforcement, which is the guards. Two is engineering, which is how the roads are designed, and three is education, and obviously finance to make all that work. So I led the initiative on that Operation Lifesaver model, and that resulted in a huge reduction in road deaths that started in '97. Now, I'm not claiming undue praise in this, but the stats are there, and I have them year by year. They're in the book, right up to the current uh, stage. Now, this year is uh, worse than last year in, in comparative terms, but I think off the top of my head, the, the road deaths in, in the 97 were 460, I think. And to date this year, it's 153, and I think that's the same as it was for the total year last year. So the, the, the problem of road deaths in statistical terms, and I don't mean to minimize for a second, you know, the, the, the trauma that's involved for people who have been killed on our roads, uh, has absolutely changed. And that came because we applied a systems approach to that. Unfortunately, some of the lessons, and I think one of the themes in my book is forgetfulness, have forgotten how this kind of an initiative was taken. Road deaths, while not as numerous as they were back in the early 90s, are still a major problem. Double penalty points now for driving offences committed during bank holidays and educating the young on driving safety seem to be important elements in all of this. While us mature drivers are no angels on the road either, it would be hoped that young people might begin to sit up and take notice of how many of their peers have been killed on our roads because of speed and losing control of the vehicle. You may never be as good a driver as you believe you are. John O'Brien believes that for those whose job it is to advise on and enforce road safety, it's a different ballgame now to what it was back in the 90s. The tactics, unfortunately, have not developed to directly in enforcement terms to take account of that. In simple terms, when you drive around the roads of West Cork, that's where you would see a go-safe van sitting on the side of the road detecting uh, speeding, allegedly. Yeah? yeah. Now, what the key thing to remember is the points at which... Those go safe vans are, are rigidly set. They do not have the under contract. They are not permitted 
to move from Dunmanway to Formoy, um, unless the point where they're going to sit up has been pre-designated, has been given all sorts of checks uh, in terms of whether it's suitable to operate. And that is because in 2010, that process of speed detection, it went from what we used to the gas called the Gatso van, which was the original species, the go safe van, which is a privatized venture. And under the contract, they have no flexibility to move from the point of detection. And it's costing the taxpayer, I think, about 12 million a year to run these uh, events. The guards could easily do the same function using the GATSO methodology, the 97 to 2010 methodology, highly effectively. But the value is that if you have, say, a spike of road deaths or serious injuries in a particular area. Using the Garda scheme of things, you could move in your Gatso vans, two, three or four, and have a focused campaign. For instance, if Tipperary was a problem, or West Cork was a problem, you could bring move in your resources. Under the current thing, it is far, far too rigid to do it. Now, that's also allied with the fact that the Garda resources in traffic policing, or what we used to call the traffic court, has been hugely minimized in recent years. So there are real problems. And part of the problem, I think, John, is, and I hope I'm not preaching, is the forgetfulness. We have forgotten collectively that we know how to solve problems when we focus when we focus on it. And that focus is not too many actors involved in the current, uh, in the current scheme of things. Keep it simple. I sat in an office and every morning at nine o'clock, we had the absolute stats around the country and we built up an annual picture of exactly who, where, when and how. And then you can put enforcement strategies in to deal with that. You've spoken about the Datso vans there. And I know people will say, well, in some cases, they're shooting fish in a barrel. And we had a case here, much documented on radio and um, in the, the print media as well, of one particular van in West Cork, about 20 yards from a T-junction in the middle of the town. I mean, that doesn't make sense, John. No, it doesn't. And, and I have another reason that I won't go into here. I have campaigned very hard against that type of approach. I ran two gather divisions at different times. And the one thing, my instructions always were to the people who were involved in traffic enforcement and speed enforcement, for God's sake, don't take the approach that numbers are absolute requirements. Shooting fish in a barrel simply discredits the whole system. When you do an enforcement activity, it has to have a logical consequence in road safety. It is not just simply about generating numbers. It's not about keeping the balance sheet ticking over. And you lose public confidence for doing that. When I was dealing with the 97 stuff, I was constantly asked in the media in many interviews, ah, this is just about uh, gathering revenue, shooting fish in a barrel. And the, the, the best day ever for, for Garda enforcement would be is if we had zero detections, because then it would mean there were zero offences. And I would be so absolutely... If I can use the word, John, I would be livid at the possibility of simply shooting fish in a barrel because it devalues the whole process. All right. And I can think of much better places where this particular van would be employed, where speed is a lot more problem than it is where he or she is or whatever. But anyway. Well, that's exactly the point, John. Yeah. I would absolutely underline that sentiment with two double heavy lines. And that brings us nicely to the end of part two in program one. But the final part in Programme 1 is on the way, so rejoin John O'Brien and me after the break.